I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a fascinating conversation recorded this past June with Mike Kim of Coming Home Well and the Veteran Etc. podcast. Mike is an Iraq War veteran, an ex-friar monk, and a psychoanalyst. He'll be discussing with us the issue of veteran readjustment culture and the myths and tropes about veterans within the national narrative of the United States. Additionally, Mike and I will be discussing his thoughts on the civilian-military divide, which Mike believes is not as real as some make it out to be. All in all, it's a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, without further ado, let's get right to it with Mike Kim of Coming Home Well and the Veteran Etc. Podcast. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that we've been planning to have on for some time, and we're, we're finally making it happen. Uh, Mike Kim of Coming Home Well and the Veteran Etc. podcast, and also a psychoanalyst, ex-monk, combat veteran, and retired U.S. Department of Veterans Vet Center site director uh, slash lead war trauma readjustment counselor uh, with more than 20,000 clinical hours in facilitating war trauma therapy. That's a mouthful, but uh, how are you doing today, Mike? 
First of all, um, thanks for the great uh, intro. Uh, you did a better job than my ex-wife. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I, I really am a huge fan of Parallax Views. So thank you for having me on. And I I have that view because a, a great view of, of, of you guys is that, you know, the guests are, are, are great. And, you know, I, I'm caught up in the research of war and veteran readjustment and its culture. And uh, I, I just feel that uh, uh, being on here is, is important. Could you talk a little bit about uh, just your background and then we can get into what veteran readjustment culture is, but let, let's start with your background um, going a little bit more in depth because psychoanalyst, ex-monk, combat yeah. vet, uh, you have a lot going on. Yeah, I, I do have a lot going on and I think, uh, I think in the end, I, I always wanted to just kind of be a chaplain. And uh, it's interesting because the first uh, person to really deal with veteran readjustment culture uh, is um, uh, a Bill Mahidi, who, who wrote a book called Out of, Out of Darkness. Uh, and it was about his uh, whole life in the Vietnam War, but also setting up readjustment uh, uh, services that are tied to Vietnam uh, readjustment for veterans who returned from Vietnam and really didn't have a place. And so that was very moving to me. And he wasn't a clinician. He was just like this Catholic monk um, who ended up being a chaplain. And I to a certain extent, followed in his footsteps, although I also became a clinician. I became a psychoanalyst. Not that I was really inspired by him, but I, I, I ended up getting into all of this because of my historical trauma inherited from my family. All of my family, whether civilian or veteran, experienced hard war and, and wars of colonialism tied to um, either the, the Japanese or the United States or the French. My stepmother even died of Agent Orange, Agent Orange prematurely through um, because of um, Parkinson's. But the thing is, is that my dad um, experienced uh, Korea as a civilian um, and also as 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 a as as a, as a, as a soldier. Uh, I mean, that was a three-year war with five million who died in that war, right? And that was that war that ushered in basically the cold war and um brought up i think an inconsistency as far as like okay let's set up these proxy you, wars you cut out there for the a world second to liberate okay um you said um so going back it brought up an inconsistency and that's where yes inconsistency in regards to the the proxy wars throughout the world that were tied to post-colonialism and colonialism that that the West has been in, involved in. And uh, I'm proud of my country, but it's interesting. I inherited these things from either my dad or my mother, you know, experiencing the invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. Um, again, my stepmother in, in, in Vietnam who experienced a lot of combat, my sister being deployed to Afghanistan. And then you know, my study of combat trauma led me throughout the years in and out of uniform, going back to the early 90s, starting off with Vietnam vets uh, and then a career in the VA. 
but just made me question this whole thing about what what is the vet supposed to do after war as far as integration? And then I found out that it was more than just integration, that it was also looking at the different myths and tropes that are tied to war and, and unhealthy militarism. And also this uh, this notion, this fake notion, I think, I'm, I call it fake, but this whole thing about the veteran-civilian divide. Like I'm saying, when I was in Iraq, yeah, you know, it was a difficult time, but at the same time, America was going through a difficult time in regards to the collapse of the economy. Does the average American really have that much time to focus on the veteran and the soldier over there? So I don't believe uh, like certain people, uh, uh, you know, these war writers like, uh, and I've written an article uh, touching on some of this, you know, these guys like uh, Phil Clay and Roy uh, uh, Scranton and, and et cetera, they, they talk about this veteran civilian divide shaming you know, civilian society. And I just find a major problem with that. And my research shows that most people are very supportive of the military. It's just, you know, the burdens of our present economy and the way these wars, 20 years of constant warfare, how, how much can you really expect from a civilian populace to be all that backing of, you know, those overseas? And I'm, I'm not against the the, the soldier, but I, I uh, as one who served in the military four different times, including a combat deployment, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't expect anyone to really uh, focus on my readjustment. I, I support being a citizen and just being a part of society and taking accountability for my readjustment. It's, it's interesting because, you know, during the Iraq War, um, you know, when when President Bush was in office, I remember the line people would go to uh, was like, "Support our troops," and uh, the idea almost was that, "Oh, if you're against the war, you must hate all these soldiers and the ones that are coming back. You, you dislike veterans." It's almost like there was a narrative sort of formed where, you know, if you if you had a criticism of the war, you always had to say, "Oh, but I, I support the troops," which you know, I, I don't see the things as like connected. I don't think saying you're against a war means, oh, uh, you know, screw all these veterans. Um, it's very weird. I, I don't know how that sort of narrative came to arise. I think you are onto something because, and some of your guests in the past have probably touched on some of this, and that is um, this militarism that... Um, kind of appeared uh, during the Cold War and uh, specifically, I think, in, in Vietnam, right? Because um, the Korean War veteran, again, three, you know, it was like a three-year war and the casualties uh, were horrendous in those three years. I mean, we're talking a total of 5 million people who died. Uh, U.S. casualties were, were higher than any other war for those three years. Uh, proportionately. And I I just think that uh, after the Vietnam War, and, and you can read the, the writing of uh, David Data, uh, the, the audience can kind of check out David Data's writing on how uh, the Vietnam War con constructed a certain type of narrative of, of the victim 
and that victim being, and I'm I'm not um, making it a, a black, white, or orange, or or brown thing, but the victimizing of the white uh, baby boomer Vietnam veteran who came back and had nothing. When in reality, in all wars, including World War II, and if we look at the book that I mentioned in my uh, first podcast episode, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, even in that so-called just war, men uh, were without jobs. Men were loss. Men were having a lot of family problems. And there's no difference, you know, in regards, in, in, in my view, uh, between that war and Vietnam and Iraq. As a matter of fact, there was a higher level of unemployment uh, of employment uh, during the Vietnam War years where people, Vietnam vets, were able to get more homes, more, you know, really prosper uh, with the American dream, more so than the World War II veteran, because the World War II veteran uh, was still going undergoing depression, uh, the, the the economic depression. It wasn't until well into the 50s that the, the World War II vet was really able to, you know, gain uh, some ground in regards to uh, economic advancement. So uh, the Vietnam veteran uh, did experience a lot of uh, negative things, no doubt. But the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, you know, came back to a higher level of unemployment. Um, and uh, a higher level of uh, of economic misery in America, and and that's never really spoken about. And again, I'm not s saying one veteran community is is uh, privileged. It's it's interesting too, and I do want to get into veteran readjustment culture and your research into that. But before we do that, the, the other thing I notice, um, I, I feel like a lot of times. Uh, you know, veterans of war almost get used as like a um, a political bludgeon by the, the right wing. So, like uh, during the Iraq War, they would they would uh, trot out someone like Chris Kyle, who's you know I, I read his book and I found a lot of it really horrifying, and it, it seemed like he was really sort of pushed by this sort of political milieu. And it's interesting to me because I'm not sure that someone like Kyle represents uh, the experience of. Uh, all troops, or not even the experience, because I, I do think he probably had real traumas, but I don't think that he represents the view of every troop on like every issue, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, because while I can um, kind of recognize uh, the accomplishments, the, the you know, I'm also a big military history veteran, the, though my call sign was uh, hippie, you know, and I was always kind of like on the border of uh, uh, getting uh, uh, written up or something. I'm shocked I was able to kind of even become an officer eventually, you know. But uh, I, I look at things, I say that with humor because uh, I'm always liking to be critical. And when I look at someone like Chris Kyle, I can admire what he did to a certain extent. But then we look at, you know, the all time Marine Corps sniper like uh, Carlos Hathcock, who was very humble as far as just kind of staying within Marine Corps culture and just teaching kind of techniques of, of being a sniper and not really becoming this veteran celebrity. And I think um, some of the challenges that I have with um, some of these folks, kind of like Kyle, and, and again, you know, it's sad that he died tragically, but um, is 
the presentation of of war and readjustment it's as what we kind of alluded to i mean there's 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 a mismatch with with the average um person who's who's deployed you know and the reasons for those deployment and what you know basically uh how is that connected to the national narrative i think chris kyle's narrative i don't think he did it on purpose but i actually think clint eastwood and the publishing houses and these movie hollywood companies they actually extracted this thing of kyle's life and probably added a lot of fillers it was kind of like me when i came back from iraq and i was being interviewed by uh American public media, and uh, I was I was doing a story for uh, you know public radio, and it was it was a pretty big uh, story. I think it's uh, uh, I think it was called the story Dick Gregory, not Dick Gregory, Dick uh, I forgot his name, but he's he's a he's a great journalist. But his people interviewed me, and they were just saying, "Well, um, what did you see? What you know? What kind of conflicts can we can we craft?" And I was like. Um, you know, I just want to give you kind of like some experiences, but I don't think you should craft or script this, you know? And I just remember having 30 minutes of my story presented after doing two hours and uh, of recording and redactions. And so Chris Kyle, yeah, you know, is problematic, but I'm also saying, you know, these publishing houses and these, uh, Hollywood studio people and folks like Clint Eastwood have this culture of militarism and militainment. You know, someone someone out of University of Georgia wrote about militainment. The other aspect I was trying to get at there is in a weird way, I almost feel like, you know, especially when when you would see Chris Kyle on Fox News, there was something that I felt was very exploitative about how he was used. You know, it's like, Oh, we're yes. going to have Chris Kyle on to talk about why Jesse Ventura is an asshole and he's anti-war and un-American. It's almost like you're just using these veterans to, you know, push uh, whatever your politics are. Like, it's very exploitative in an odd way. It is. And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, I'm I'm shocked that I was able to get a, another podcast. I started and pioneered a lot of warrior, I mean, veteran wellness uh, back, you know, in 2015. And then I think when people found out my politics and I always was very respectful, but, um, you know, it was just, you know, that was this cancel culture on me, you know, the progressive from, you know, a lot of these hyper right wing and I have nothing against conservatives, but these hyper right wing kind of people that are obsessed with militarism and the military industrial complex and using entertainment as a way to push, you know, these wars and these continuation of wars, I have problems with that. So this is going to be a good segue into, I guess, veteran readjustment culture, because I think when people look at, you know, these figures, and we we talked off air about, you know, a a figure like uh, Jocko Willink or uh, Chris Kyle, I don't know that they're representative of how all soldiers, uh, all veterans deal with things. I think a lot of veterans probably, you know, aren't like Chris Kyle in the sense that they, they probably don't want to talk about uh, what happened with their experiences. Uh, they, they may be, you know, uh, traumatized by it or just they, they don't feel the need to like uh, 
talk about it unless, you know, sometimes people will ask, but in general, I think a lot of veterans um, in my experience aren't like keen to tell you their whole story uh, just off the bat. So I, it's interesting you say that I'm, I'm very close to a good friend of mine uh, uh, who, who, who saw a lot of, a lot of combat. And when I speak to him, uh, I, I rarely hear the uh, uh, experiences. And even though I experienced combat, he, he went multiple times. I served four different times going back to the eighties and then came back after 20 years being out and, and just, you know, I, I had enough once I, 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 I was there and, and, and I came back, but Brett experienced, you know, his whole life pretty much, you know, sound of a Vietnam veteran and then spending many years in and out of deployment from Afghanistan to Iraq. And, uh, you know, he experienced a lot of real tragedies and uh, real kind of like uh, triumphs, but they weren't like those that 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 willing willing Jocko willing talk about. You know, for example, he has like these book reviews, and I like some of Jocko's stuff. But I mean, when he has like a ex Nazi like Ernst Junger, you know, the the Steel of Storm Battle, and I think is one it's book. Storm and of I think Steel, yeah. Storm Storm of Steel, and then the other War as an Inner Mem memoir or inner experience it's almost mystifying uh creating a mystical experience here's where the monk comes out in me and uh i just kind of see this mystical type of uh almost like fantasy like and that doesn't uh minimize the actual war experiences but this mystical type of experience regarding war um is I think damaging towards readjustment because it misses the the voices of like a Brett or the voices of my sister who was you know a, a mom of three and 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 deployed. I mean I think she deployed before, but you know just having to deal with marriage and having kids back to back and having to deal with your own issues and then working in combat trauma as she did the same thing that I did. You know uh, experiencing war every day uh, through the stories of others. That's very different than than having some guy who does. Uh, jiu-jitsu and is talking about uh you know who's a war hero but is talking about a nazi who basically made a a pact with uh you know um with hitler and the nazi party that's what all officers were vowed to all soldiers in the nazi army had some type of formal allegiance through their oath and the officer corps had an even tighter one so to to separate the uh the soldier from the politics of war is very difficult to do. And I even say within me and some of my research, I think a lot of guys, um, they don't recognize, uh, you know, how they have been involved, even though I'm a son of someone who was involved, you know, son of, 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 of parents who were involved in imperial wars. I am, I cannot separate myself in the sense that I too was a part of that on some level. So then what do we mean when we say veteran readjustment culture? So I'm glad you say that because I, um, I've spent a lot of time researching this. And when it comes to veteran readjustment culture, uh, I look at veteran 
readjustment acts that were set up by the United States government to improve the lives of veterans on an economic, um, you know, from an economic perspective, whether it was reactionary, like a lot of people think, oh, the GI Bill was uh, set up to, um, you know, uh, uh, help, you know, help guys coming back from wars and increase the middle class. No, it's, it was actually set up out of fear if you if people do the research because they were afraid that troops would be coming back to such a horrible economy that there would be riots. Now, if we look at the the bonus army riots of of the early depression, we saw you know uh, World War One troops hitting Capitol Hill uh, and, and basically starting shanty towns and and setting up protests and riots. That had to be suppressed by guys like if Eisenhower, people, Patton, and Mac and MacArthur. If people are unfamiliar, because yeah. we never learned Go about ahead. the Burnham Smurches when I was in school, and I feel like you know it, it's Please. sort of a black mark in American history, because and that's why right. no one talks about it. So, what were the bonus marches for people that may be unfamiliar? Well, the bonus marches were were basically, um, you know, there was there was a, a guaranteed. Um, uh, small amount of, of pension money that was supposed to be given to um, veterans of World War One. Right. And there the was US like a GI bill. Yeah. 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 It was it was it was a minor it was a minor allowance for your service in World War One. And uh, yeah, like a GI bill. And um, the veterans never got it. And it was under Herbert Hoover, you know, the, the bad eco economic times, much like now. And basically, the government did not deliver on that. And as we know, back then, um, you had huge labor movement. You had anarchists. You had uh, socialists. You had communists. You had uh, progressives. You know, 30% of the vote in America uh, was coming from one of these different alternative views, you know, uh, you know, and and that influenced a lot of veterans and a lot of organizers got together with veterans. Uh, there was a famous priest out of uh, Pittsburgh. I forgot his name. He was tied to uh, the bonus marches. And they basically, you know, it was basically citizens and veterans standing up for um, these these you know, these rights and these this federal funding that needed to be circulated to veterans. And after FDR took over, there there was, um, you know, this recognition. Um, but it wasn't fully uh, actualized until troops were coming back from World War II. I mean, there was like a temporary allowance after, you know, those riots, right? But that like you said, was a black stain in American history. And again, mirroring the the original, the original riots, right? The Shays Rebellion, another black mark in American history where veterans, that was like the first major riot in America. And it was by troops that were against the taxation, unfair taxation uh, tied to certain um, uh, big farmers that were controlling the land in Massachusetts. And basically, a, a small uh, veteran army from the Independence War uh, got caught up with that, and uh, you know it was it was settled. But you know it doesn't explain the the mutiny that occurred later on in Philadelphia. You know, a couple of years later, it doesn't explain the St. Patrick's Brigade. You know, in the in the Mexican American War, where where veteran resistance was real. 
So it's not just these this little event that occurred, you know, after World War One. It's a culmination of, of veterans looking at how are we being treated? You know, right now there's a big talk about privatization. Well, I've been doing a lot of uh, archival work and I've been looking at, you know, the, the first uh, uh, soldiers and sailors homes, they were set up. Those were those were pretty much the first kind of VAs and they were privatized and it, they were supported through war booty through 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 our um uh different uh campaigns around the world you know uh through uh through shipping and 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 using the marines and the war booty that was brought in was used to support these homes and they were very uh, uh minimally kept and uh and it wasn't until lincoln that kind of said let's let's put money government money into um these homes and also set up something like what we have now, and that is the VA to help veterans and improve their lives. And I think that's that's the bottom line uh, is looking at the veteran and what type of life can can be in, improved uh, after military service. I, I was going to say real quick too, with with the bonus marches, it's so wild yeah. when you really get down to think about it. For people that don't know, I mean. You have these bonus marchers who were like, we want our compensation that we were promised. And then you have, you know, people like General Patton literally That's, going against them. Like people, there were people right. there that were like, oh, Patton's going to be on their side. And then he ends up, you know, they get charged at. Uh, it's charged it's at. Yeah, really I, wild. Yeah. 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 Wounded. There were several wounded. The, the, the shanty homes were burned. Uh, I think there was one man who died um, as, as a result of uh, military you know, domestic military intervention. The military intervention was a domestic uh, uh, action that was done, you know, Washington, D.C. by our federal government. So it, it's interesting because uh, since we had mentioned the bonus marches, I do feel like um, I, I find it interesting that since I mentioned Patton, we have the whole movie about Patton with George C. Scott and he won awards for it. But I, it, it's interesting to me, we don't get like a, a general Smedley Butler movie. Um, it's almost like we don't get to hear the side of uh, veterans like Butler who were very anti-war. And what's what's interesting to me about Butler is I, I think he was almost, you know, primarily, I would say, driven by the fact that it was about the soldiers for him. It wasn't about Marxism or politics. He was just concerned about the soldiers and thinking that war just did damage to these people when they came home. Um, it's interesting, though, because I don't think we have a lot of representation of that in media, these these soldiers who feel that, hey, maybe there's an issue with war. Maybe, you know, we should try to avoid it more. Right. And as you and I look at, and this is what's also tied to veteran readjustment culture, is who are the players behind the policies of putting these people into war? So, so Smedley Butler would definitely be a figure within veteran readjustment culture, although he would you know, uh, traditionally be seen as someone for the History Channel to talk about his, you know, he he was uh, the youngest Marine, I think, to win a Medal of Honor, or youngest person to win a Medal of Honor. He also had like three of them or something, just some ridiculous amount of, 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 of combat um, heroism. But yet he's able to reflect and know that, hey, he and the others are pawns to something larger. Right, some type of corporate interest, um, and 
to talk about veteran readjustment culture, I would look at who, who, what are the policies? Who are the players uh, tied towards putting people back into the war zone? Who designed, you know, this whole push for um, uh, stop loss during the uh, Iraq war, right? That ended up having people that I saw who really didn't belong in the war zone, much like how I see the Ukrainian volunteers right now from the West, you know, who have experienced a lot of war and just don't need that war zone experience again. Um, who are these people that are setting up the stage um, to have folks readjust in uh, a very challenging manner? Um, because if we just look at veteran readjustment as far as like, oh, Wounded Warrior Project just set up this uh, cookout uh, for this week with uh, uh, Gary Sinise or Tom Hanks, that's great. Um, it's also missing, well, what was happening in regards to the Senate Arms Committee the week before as far as talking about funding for the Wounded Warrior platoon or company that's set up by the government for troops who are transitioning, who experience some type of wound or injury, and what what is their life going to be like? I think, you know, a lot of times our priorities are missed. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the VA and how it figures into all of this uh, veteran affairs, because I think sometimes I, I've heard people say, oh, it's it's too bureaucratic or there's something I've heard criticism of it at times. So I'm wondering what you think of the VA and its relationship to veteran readjustment. Well, it's funny because uh, I have a uh, love hate relationship. Uh, my hate, let me just say, is that I was a whistleblower for the VA and literally almost took, took my life. I, I basically wanted, you know, they drove me so crazy by by me putting the whistleblower on top of all my military and deployment issues. Uh, I had to fight this whistleblower. And basically I was willing to die for that, to, to end my life so that my son would receive uh, my insurance money, but to expose all the different people um, who were tied to uh, uh, malpractice at, at the VA because there there is malpractice. But I would say that malpractice and mismanagement in medical administration, healthcare administration, it's rampant all over because of the neo-liberalization uh, of healthcare. So that's the larger issue. And it's not necessarily, it's a VA issue, but it goes deeper into American culture as far as the neoliberalization of healthcare that makes every little thing measurable, including combat time, including combat treatment time. How many minutes are you going to spend with a vet like a good friend of mine who died during COVID, who was a, a top Marine sniper, and he, and he took his life. Marco uh, sadly took his life. He wasn't monitored probably because of a certain statistic that said during COVID, he'll be okay, right? Instead of just giving the care no matter what, you know? And I'm not saying the VA is restraining itself, but it's had this mentality to fight off a lot of conservative and privatization folks, you know, in Congress and in, in different lobbies to try to make this super hyper efficient VA system that's missing uh, a lot of care 
um, for for veterans. And so what happened was, especially in 2014, as we know, Obama wasn't really liked by the larger veteran community, let's face it. Um, and, you know, we had these deaths and I, I don't I don't condone what happened in Arizona. Uh, you know, with, with those VA deaths that happened because of scheduling. But we don't know exactly if it was cause and effect in regards to the VA causing those deaths, right? There could be many different factors, but the media, especially white, re white uh, right-wing uh, mass media, started to blame the president and General Sinseki, who was a very honorable administrator, someone who I even challenged in front of a room of a thousand people and never got reprimanded for it, as far as like looking at alternative approaches towards helping veterans, which he ended up allowing shortly after that. Um, the bottom line is this, um, the, the hyper-conservatives took charge of the media and the media started putting out stories about how inefficient the VA was. And it doesn't back up the, the, uh, the uh, research. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of research that shows uh, the effectiveness of VA care. And is it perfect? No, but it offers so much care to so many types of people, not just uh, the retiree in Arizona, but how about that homeless vet who's on meth on the street? You know, regular shelters aren't going to pick that person up. It's the VA that picks up these folks going through extreme addiction, uh, war trauma, health problems, that they're able to get a higher level of care. And if you can't afford it, you're going to get it for free. And I don't, I don't understand why that's such a big crime in this whole dialogue of, of the VA. I mean, you could look at a lot of reports done on a lot of other hospitals showing very similar numbers, but I think you will find a high level of, of uh, patient satisfaction from the VA that's not really reported. I think too, it gets into an issue that I've always found interesting. I think there's a lot of people that are really gung-ho about say military spending but that right. doesn't necessarily include, you know, spending on helping vets afterwards. Right. right. Could right. you speak and, to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I would say this, and, and it's funny because uh, I, I was on um, Ben Burgess talking uh, about um, Dan Crenshaw, our, our uh, Navy SEAL congressman down in Texas, um, who, who spends a lot of time talking about the importance of defense and all of this and, and, and about, you know, uh, fossil fuels and all these kind of things. And he's always like against like social security and, and kind of like veteran funding in many ways. And I, I would just say that um, we look at these different issues and we don't want to like break down the, the the particular money involved and the military budget to be quite honest you need to include that va so what we're approaching a trillion dollars of 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 of, of uh, military funding even more so now because of ukraine so you know in many ways you you can give a good argument that you've got the veteran budget included into defense and people don't want to face that even though they are separate i do believe that 
when it comes to these wars and everything, that is an expense. And we should be looking at what the proportion, the, the, the proportion is, right? Because we don't want to do that. Like, I don't know, maybe it's peanuts compared the VA budget compared to the defense budget. And yet how many lives, you know, and I'm not just talking about soldiers and Marines and sailors and airmen and coasties. I'm talking about families involved on, on top of that, you know, um, just these, the numbers are, are just not accurately um, uh, represented in, in, in what these politicians are talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I promise we'll get into Ukraine after this, but, uh, you know, but while talking to you now, and we, we had talked about this a bit before uh, recording, you know, uh, just to tie this into uh, pop culture a little bit here, um, I've always found it interesting. I, I, I really love uh, the movie First Blood, which everyone that doesn't know, that's the first Rambo movie. That's the title of it. And I think it's a really good first rate drama about, you know, I, I always tell people it's the story of a vet who just wants a sandwich. He's homeless now and all he wants is a sandwich and they won't give it to him, <laughs> you know, True. but it's it's that's a very interesting movie because I think it shed light on this issue of uh, you know veterans and the, the need to help them readjust uh, when they come back from the war zone right and how we weren't dealing with that in a lot of ways after Vietnam that's largely what the movie is about it's a very uh, sad tragic movie you end up very sympathetic towards uh, Rambo because he's obviously he has these issues and no one's really helping him through them. Uh, but then years later, during the Reagan years, we get all these Rambo sequels, you know, Rambo saves the POWs, Rambo uh, fights with the Mujahideen. And it sort of becomes this thing where we lose sight of the original message of that first film, which was how do we help with veteran readjustment? And we get into this idea of, well, you know, maybe we just need to send Rambo back to war. You know, war is the solution for everything. And to me, it, it's it's just very telling that we went from, you know, that original movie, which was making a statement about you know the need to help veterans uh, readjust after war to you know just you know Stallone running around with the Mujahideen it's yeah yeah well it, it goes from sir they drew first blood right because he was provoked right in the first movie right so he's provoked and uh they the the sheriff uh doesn't care about him he was like who cares what kind of police war in Vietnam he fought I I fought in World War II that, that was like some of the messaging that was going on you know and he even the, the the sheriff is even talking to Colonel Troutman the handler for Rambo and he's even saying you know I don't really care you know let's just get him out of here so you have this like you said this minimum minimization of minimalization of, of veterans here through the life of Rambo but then yeah you you have the going back for the PF POWs in Vietnam, and then you have the Russia thing. And, you know, you hear the, the dialogue changing, the narrative changing, right? Where Rambo is now talking about, sir, do we have a chance to win this time? And it's ironic because I'm seeing that recede in some of, um, in some of the literature uh, that's coming out with a, a lot of these, uh, I call them celebrity war writers, these glam vets. Um, that are writing uh, different pieces. And who knows, maybe I'm a glam vet, but at least I'm a progressive one. But the thing is, is that um, some of these glam vets, you know, and I'm not saying they're all conservative, they could just be just kind of middle, just kind of on this kind of New York Times 
neoliberal kind of vet world kind of thing going on. And they're saying, well, maybe if we had the proper leadership, we could have won in Iraq. And if we had the support of the American people, we could have won in Iraq and all of this stuff that, you know, the 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 politicians and, and the generals like Petraeus really let us down. But, you know, we were there and we could have maybe made a huge difference there. And the way I see things, you know, um, Iraq is just a permanent war that just uh, one, we should have never been there. And I'm not I'm, I'm just talking about the ethics, the basic ethics of the war. And then I'm talking about just the nuances that really uh, it's a dead end. It's nothing to do with, you know, how great uh, the leaders were or how, how many different types of weapons or men that we had to win that war, supposedly. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I think it gets into the. I, I think in a way that whole going from, you know, the, the first Rambo movie to these sequels, you end up seeing, I think, a lot about how America just won't face certain issues. You know, I think, you know, I think a lot of soldiers come home and they deal with things like alienation. Uh, yes. And I don't think that those sequels dealt with that same sense of alienation as the first movie did. So what maybe we could talk about what do you think some of the, the issues that's faced when they come home? Is it alienation? What else? Well, I would say, you know, out of my uh, between 20 to 13, 20 to 30,000 war trauma combat uh, uh, therapy uh, facilitation, I would say I noticed three interesting things that that have come out from the veteran. And that is um, one, the interperson, the interpersonal, the intersubjective relationships that those folks had when they were in combat. So a lot of people focus on the events, you know, ah, the rocket attack or the fire fight, the ambush. Those are very important. And for understanding the PTSD, which is one part of war trauma, and this is what I'm trying to look at in in my research, that's only one part. There's also depression. There's also uh, adjustment disorder. There's many different disorders tied, maladies tied to war trauma that in many ways are tied to the interpersonal relationships that happen in the war zone. So you getting sent on a mission that didn't seem like a humanitarian mission, but seemed more like a real combat patrol, you know, that has, you know, uh, some problems there, you know, with, with people as far as looking at leadership or, um, someone you're sharing, uh, you know, battle buddy that you hate, that it was, placed on you, you know, but that you feel, you know, compromises you out in the battle zone. So you, you've got that. Then you have um, a lot of things that you find veterans caught up on as far as myths and tropes, and we've talked about them. And so they'll unconsciously or subconsciously in sessions talk about these different uh, uh, myths and tropes as if, you know, the movies are not saying that they're lying, but in many ways, they're taking on a lot of these narratives within the dominant culture and uh, including them within their own nam- narratives within within their combat experience. And I think that when, when you break these two things, uh, one, an awareness of the different interpersonal relationships you had and looking at the real like, hey, I really hated that asshole. Even though we are bands of, band of brothers, you know, supposedly, 
um, I really hated that asshole and I can face that. And that I've seen that as being very healing. I've also seen this whole thing of the breakup of these different myths and tropes of war to, to help the veteran kind of like transcend a lot of these different uh, uh, homecoming yellow ribbon kind of like expectations, right? Which lead the vet in many ways to be frustrated with, with society. And that also goes back to my other thing that a lot of veterans come in talking about this veteran, this so-called alienation because of the veteran civilian divide. And my thing is, as someone working with veterans, I think whether it's in a combat zone or in civilian life, whether you're a soldier or not, you, or a Marine or a sailor, you should be looking at the other human being in many ways as someone to, I don't know, view with some empathy and compassion. Like if you're just so focused on you coming back so angry from the war and you're not criticizing those particular policies and people that put you in the war and you're just yelling at your next door neighbor because he's lighting up some firecrackers and stuff like that during fourth of july which is something very real a trigger you know sometimes you have to stand back and 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 kind of like look at the bigger picture to all of this so when you talk about breaking down tropes and myths uh like can you give a concrete example of like a myth you would try to break down with someone to help them, uh, you know, uh, transcend whatever their problem they're having. I would say uh, a common myth that came up was um, that the enemy is all around, and so it's interesting, especially with Vietnam vets. Um, I'm I'm part Asian, right, and so they they would somewhat uh, accept me because my dad was in a Korean uh, kind of tough Korean unit that fought you know against communism but my dad doesn't really have uh, he's kind of indifferent of his duty and, and what he saw so uh so when these people say you know yeah your dad must be a really tough tough guy you know korean 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 infantry army infantry they were so tough in vietnam my dad was not in vietnam he fought uh, uh brush fire wars in um, on the border and also uh he experienced uh the Korean War up in, up close and personal as a, as a civilian during the Incheon landing of Marines. Um, so I would say the enemy all around, I would have to ask, well, who is the enemy? So when the word gook would come up, you know, there was nothing by the VA. And this is one thing that the VA and some of these clinicians like Robert J. Lifton, I, I really respect, you know, coming home after the war and, and really doing a lot for helping veterans, but not talking about Politics also involves looking at your enemy. And I'm wondering when you're dehumanizing the enemy, which in many ways you have to do when you're in war, you don't have to do it, but in many ways um, you're put in that position. When you come back, do you still have to do that? You know, and, and I've had a lot of great talks with people, whether they had issues with white people towards black people or, you know, certain words that were brought up, you know, and I, I, I heard the word gook and chink, you know, it, almost every week there was something like that. And I try to tell the administrators, hey, when you're in group therapy or an individual, what, why can't you put a protocol to like help clinicians, help people to deal with the enemy? Because if they're not like tied to understanding their images, these narratives of, of, of enemy, if you don't help them create maybe counter narratives, 
maybe, you know, they're going to stay boxed in, you know, um, like, like Rambo in many ways, right. From first blood. Um, I'm not, I'm not demonizing, but what I'm saying is that's a huge myth. We have to let go of, you know, the Arab, you know, now the Russian, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I want all kumbaya, but I want to recognize um, the reality from the fantasy. And that's where Freud, you know, I studied combat trauma and he's the father of like war trauma therapy because he worked setting up free clinics and um, for veterans. And in many ways, he allowed the free association of thoughts on the enemy as well as thoughts of home to come up. And he worked with leading uh, veterans to see objective reality as far as like some of this anger that you have for the enemy is anger. And that's chapter seven of, of, uh, of uh, uh, civilization and its discontents that he's basically saying a lot of the anger is, is, is coming from you. It's directed from your own anger, you know, and doing work with veterans for many years, I, I found that, you know, helping veterans deal with that anger and that um, othering of the enemy, breaking down the othering of the enemy was very helpful. It, it sounds like in some ways you're trying to break down this concept of the, the veteran civilian divide. Like you're, you're trying to almost put that to rest in a way saying, you know, yes. it's not as, you know, maybe, maybe it exists, but it's not as, as, as uh, all encompassing as people think. And it's not, it's not the root of why um, you didn't get your GI bill on time. It's not the reason why some civilian working at the VA hates you. It's not, you know, it's not these different things it's more like, you know, who's this politician that's pushing um, your VA benefits to be uh, decreased because whatever, there's like a 10-year limit, a 10-year time limit, and uh, they just want to like kind of like have more money to put in to uh, some, some other program and not for the veteran. Why can't that be looked at instead of, oh, Joe... Uh, Joe the plumber, Joe the plumber, the civilian is against me uh, because they didn't serve in the military. Like I don't believe that service in the military uh, is equal to like uh, patriotism, or that service in the military is a factor in this so-called um, veteran-civilian divide. I believe in more of a veteran-civilian lack of awareness, a sense of not being on the same climate, you know, I see, you know, these four different seasons within the veteran terrain. And I just think that, you know, the civilian could be in spring, whereas the, the, the veteran could be in a permanent state of winter, you know what I mean? And what, you know, what are the systems that are being used to take that um, veteran out of winter and maybe into spring and summer? You know, I, I don't know. These are things that I wrestle with on a day-to-day -day basis because it kills me when I read something on the New York Times blaming civilians for the larger problems tied to veteran readjustment. Now, do you think they're, I know you're saying uh, we shouldn't blame civilians, but at, at the same time, do you think, 
do you think civilians have their own sort of uh, perceptions colored by myths and tropes uh, that affect how they deal with veterans or how they think about veterans? Does that make sense or? Yes, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I do think at times, uh, veter- I, I've seen it more in um, the employment um, field in the labor world where um, I know of many veterans who uh, were not given uh, opportunities because um, they had like the resumes, but they went through some type of veteran transition. There was a gap in their resume and hey, they, they did uh, PTSD um, uh, inpatient therapy for like five months. And so like, why, why does that veteran need to be persecuted for going to five months of treatment and seeking a job, right? And why does the employee, usually a civilian, uh, it could be a veteran, another veteran who basically, I don't know if you remember Dead Presidents. Do you remember Dead Presidents? Remember at the end when Martin Sheehan, he brilliantly plays that role where he's a judge and he was like, well, I fought in World War II and uh, we never did this type of dishonorable type of act, you know, of, you know, the so-called you know, the guy who was accused. And I think his name's Ari Maritzatone. He's, he's, he's out, he's, he's out of prison and he, he gives a lot of talks. He'd be interesting to get on, but like, you know, Martin Sheehan gives this certain type of narrative as a veteran, as far as how you should be squared away and everything. I think veteran uh, civilians can also have these unrealistic expectations at times. I don't think I don't think it runs rampant. I do believe it, it it does exist. And because of not so much, again, this whole civilian conspiracy against veterans, but we're not looking at the policies, right? So if there's like a job that's offered and there's like 5,000 applications, you know, and this vet shows up, right? For the job, job, for the job interview and everything. And, you know, there's like all these other things involved as far as hiring. Usually the vet may not get that, that may not get that job opportunity, but not because he's just the vet, but because, you know, the employer might have some other tie to someone else may want a certain type of skill set that's set up by all this neoliberalization, you know, uh, you know, all these, all these different certifications and all that while the veteran had spent, you know, 12 years, you know, deployed and really didn't have a chance to, you know, develop certain skills. And his other skills are not really valued in civilian society. So I think that's the larger misunderstanding that the New York Times won't talk about or that, you know, uh, Sebastian Younger in his book, Tribe and War, you know, not like, you know, Sebastian Younger, but I, I just think that, a lot of these uh, messaging about, you know, the tribalism of veterans and this veteran-civilian divide, I, I think it's most—it's really more of a myth and a trope because it it fails to look at how our society, you know, not the particular people, have set up policies against veterans. That that's sort of what I was getting at, though. When I'm, I think there's certain civilians that almost treat veterans like they're like that's what they are they're just a veteran or you know like 
like I, I think at times we have these sort of patriotic images of the soldier is like yes. a Superman type figure. And we don't just think of them simply as like a human being, right. uh, you know, where right. we think of them only as a veteran. Whereas like to right. me, I, I think veterans, uh, that's just one aspect of them. You know, yes. someone is a veteran, but they're also uh, many other things as well. Right. Right. I'm glad you said that. And and I don't think I've ever been uh, interviewed this deeply to make me think uh, or this deep in the way to think about my life outside of being a veteran. But, you know, you made me think about my life as a veteran and then becoming a monk. I was involved in Harlem in the Bronx during the Clinton crime bill, as well as during welfare reform in the 90s. I spent almost 10 years working in all the housing projects with the poor um, and with children. I started off as a child psychoanalyst before I got into, you know, adult trauma and combat trauma. But those experiences really helped me kind of see poverty in such a deep way that when I ended up leaving the VA after my son was born for a short period of time, and I took on a job with, um, this program called Jericho Project that was really tied to a lot of like high-end housing, urban housing development. And they wanted me to be, uh, you know, like kind of like the the golden boy. And they paid me a lot of money to do so. Um, But at the same time, I had to bring in my experience working with the poor in Harlem in the Bronx to contextualize the veteran experience there in many ways, as far as like, I understand the part of poverty. Do you understand the poverty? Do you understand that, you know, you've set up this, this, this program in a way that really needs some, some supervision that's going to be healthy and, and help these folks succeed in their housing. And yet it was uh, minimized because they were just kind of saying, well, that's my Kim. That's that's the 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 the, the veteran scholar or whatever at, at Columbia, kind of like you know he's like the guy in this in the suit and the, I used to wear a lot of bow ties, you know. So that's the vet with the bow tie, and that's it, you know. But never really taking my my uh, my views regarding veteran poverty because of my experience that I that I witnessed in the '90s in Harlem and the Bronx. So just a few more things I wanted to touch upon. I know you said you've been looking into this issue of veterans uh, going uh, to support Ukraine, um, volunteering. Um, What is your interest in that subject? Well, I I really thank you. I thank you, JG. I thank Parallax Views because a a lot of... um, Folks, including folks from the progressive camp, they don't want to touch the topic. They they wanted, you know, I pitched it and uh, they really didn't want to touch it. Uh, I, I think in many ways, because they think it's just one of these small things, um, you know, a couple a couple of, of vets going out there. But we actually have like 20,000, you know, I would say out of the 20,000, I'd say 15,000 like American veterans going over to Ukraine and fighting. And my thing is this, as a clinician, I see this as very detrimental to veterans because, and if we could look at Freud, uh, you know, he, one of his cases was, I believe, Ratman. And Ratman was a soldier who had problems with interpersonal relationships with a superior and then ended up uh, leaving treatment prematurely with Freud and going off to war and dying there. 
that to me is a very interesting narrative in regards to a lot of these vets that are receiving care at the VA, right, for wars fought in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, um, you know, need a break in many ways from the war zone to kind of like heal and go through treatment. And now they're being sent to this other war, right? I, I've, I've been in, in touch with one, about two guys. One one guy's a well-known uh, personality. He's is a, a I-N-L-E. Um, you know, he came back, he, he was there for a couple of weeks and he basically, basically said, this is a whole nother, you know, I'm deeply triggered by all of this. And not only that, it's a whole nother war. This isn't Iraq and Afghanistan where we've got the gear, we've got officers who, um, you know, at least are, are taught in a highly professional manner to kind of like lead and not perfect, but there's just a structure and support to really, you know, be in a war zone. Whereas Lee and some other some other guys who've come back from uh, Ukraine are explaining how difficult it is over there. I mean, that war is a full conventional war. It's not like uh, banging down doors uh, from some goat farmer uh, in Afghanistan and and kind of like you know um, uh, leading a patrol into these little towns. It's you know a. Uh, 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 intense artillery war where there's like massive carnage we don't even know how many americans have died but i've got a i've got a friend i, I would say i would say an associate who went over there and uh, i don't know where he is i don't know what's happening but i think it was piss poor and i hate to say it by the biden administration to not make a bold statement as far as like we want troops to stay here and go through their recovery. If they had gone through military service and saw conflict, that this is a public health issue, and we're gonna we're we're going to um, not allow troops to. We're not gonna allow any type of uh, uh, of, of this type of uh, uh, you know adventure warism or adventurism tied to war. Not only that, I'm really concerned because I spent a lot of time at Norwich University Military College. At, Vermont studying military history and ethics. If I remember one of my lectures by by a great military historian, James Toner, who wrote the book, The American Military Ethic, when we studied the Geneva Convention, what I found kind of interesting that the media doesn't talk about and that you're aware of is that the Geneva Convention, you know, by the time 1949 comes along, it's basically saying over and over again, uh, prisoners of war, they're treated fairly in their humanity and not to be punished. They're just being held, right, as, as combatants until the war is over or until it, the fastest way possible to get these folks home to keep them inactive from the war zone from being involved in more kinetic violence. It's not an issue of detaining folks to punish them. Now, if you're caught up in war crimes, that's something different. But the basic understanding of this is tied to the combatant. And, and there's there are many over in the Ukraine who are not technically part of this Ukrainian legion, which uh, I have questions about because I went on their website and uh, I saw their vetting process 
And uh, I, I don't think it's a complete vetting process as far as who they accept to go into the war zone. And I also think the United States should have done much more, the State Department should have done much more to kind of recognize this issue as more of a public health issue. Because imagine what, I mean, have you seen, uh, you know, the, the the fiance of the latest, I mean, it was just a couple of days ago that that two, no, one is missing, uh, Grady uh, Carposi, he's missing. And then there's two that are captured now. And one of them has a fiance and you hear her and she's just devastated. So it's just not the true, the, the I, don't, I wouldn't say the soldier fortune, the military adventurous who's out there um, fighting in many ways and justly, I mean, not like unjustly as a result of what Putin, uh, who I don't approve of and I don't approve of this war, but in international law, I think Putin has a case to say, you know, the states are involved in this war, right? The, the Ru Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, so you have these, these uh, adventurists coming in. They're not tied to the political body that's focused on this war. So in many ways, it's considered a criminal act because they're part of violence in an unregulated manner. I mean, sure, you could say, oh, being part of the Georgian Legion, you're 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 part of something, but it's technically, you know, Russia is not having diplomatic relationships with the um the German, the the um the Georgian Legion, right? And so that's that's the big problem. And then the the, the other problem, you know, so you've got these informal uh, troops uh, over there, and then you have the formal troops. And I'm wondering what kind of true leadership are you getting um, over there um, when there's not much of an investment made for you if you get um, caught as a prisoner, you know. And the United States government has done very little to communicate. With the American people, what they're doing with these Ukrainian legionnaires, so these official so-called soldiers uh, who come from the West to help in the Ukrainian campaign, and I'm also concerned about folks, these veteran um, celebrities, you know, that we've talked about earlier, that are showing up to Ukraine and teaching uh, arms, uh, small arms fire. Well, that's not going to help you if you're a civilian and. Uh, to take on a shell of a 155, you know, artillery piece, you know, I mean, you know, that's serious devastation. That's what this war is about. It's not like some type of glamorized, uh, you know, Red Dawn scheme, you know, talking about mass culture. And uh, and I just think the way Zelensky and all these, you know, uh, war hawks in the United States have presented this Red Dawn mentality, like the people are going to stand up against, you know, these crack troops now. I mean, if you looked at what Russia has been putting in, it's not like the conscripts now. I mean, you've got like real fighters going in there now and uh, they're kind of having their way with, um, with the Ukraine. And my question is, are these folks, these veterans from the West, don't they need to focus on their readjustment?
And is in readjustment culture looks at that type of issue. And, and this is where I think a lot of people miss uh miss the mark when they talk about these these heroic band of brothers volunteers, which they're doing a noble thing, but at the same time, they it's at a huge cost. Last thing I wanted to touch upon, um, and I want to be careful about uh talking about this because I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm currently looking at an article about the uh the whole January 6th right. uh, capital breach, right? And uh, there's an article. That came, what's that? I want to talk about it. So thank you. So I, the article that I'm, I have up right now, and this is uh, from military.com. It's from June 7th, 2022. Uh, veterans make up most of Proud Boy members indicted on sedition for Jan 6 violence. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I think uh, according to the article, it says nearly all of the five members of the Proud Boys extremist group were indicted by federal authorities this week. Um, and according to court documents, uh, they, they were veterans of, of the army, um, except for, I think, uh, Enrico Tario, who's gotten yeah. a lot of the media attention. But I, I think this has come up uh, a lot of times in the past as well. I'm also looking at a uh, government document um, a statement before the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, and it deals with uh, violent domestic extremist groups and the recruitment mm -hmm. of veterans. So uh, according to that, um, you know, 10% of domestic extremist attacks uh, since 2015 have involved veterans of some sort, and which is interesting because veterans make up about 6% of the population. And I'm, I'm also thinking of things here like, uh, you know, Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing was uh, yep. a, a, a veteran. Uh, of the Gulf War. And in bringing all this up, I hope people don't get the impression, I'm not saying, oh, all veterans are just gonna become domestic no. extremists, but no. what do you think is going on with this phenomena of uh, the far right wing, uh, these domestic extremist groups trying to recruit veterans? Well, it's interesting because James Toner, and uh, I'm not sure if he's alive, I think he retired and he's in, in Connecticut, but uh, he did write The American Military Ethic. And in that book, um, which, influenced me and in, in my thoughts on the military is that um, not just civilian policies, but civilian culture in the United States um, in many ways um, uh, influences, also uh, contradicts um, the American military culture. And so what we're seeing, what I think I'm seeing is, um, you know, after Trump, we find the recognition, the full recognition, the half the country's uh, one way, you know, kind of liberal leaning, but then you also have a, you have a or moderate combined moderate liberal leaning half. And then you have this, this uh, right, you know, mostly, you know, extreme right. Um, and so you've got this clash of narratives, not so much a class of civilizations like what Huntington talks about, but you have this clash of narratives. And what we see right now is this narrative of, uh, and it started early on within the Trump uh, uh, presidency, and, and I'm not bashing Trump, but I, I, I have to be, I have to be real about this, but this replacement uh, culture uh, or this cultural phenomenon of replacement, right? That 
we won't you won't replace us right oh, you, like, you, you like mean minority. like this whole idea that there's a, a great replacement conspiracy by the yes. liberals to replace the uh the white man or the you know the, yes. i think they usually use code words like uh the yes the traditional american you know yeah yes so so since you have that now in the milit uh in civilian society and to go along with uh james toner's kind of position um, I, I kind of see this now in the military, right? When people were saying, well, why does this minority get this officer's commission? Or why do, you know what I mean? I'm not going to be led by this person, or I'm not going to have this person in the unit. It's more what I find. Uh, I don't believe the military is racist, but I, again, the, these toxic parts of civilian culture are receding into military culture and, and affecting uh, military troops. I don't think it's as widespread as uh, as as it is in the military. I think there's a lot of different things. Let's face it, the 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 military. You know, well before the so-called critical race theory, which I've studied, but the so-called kind of like problems of it. Um, the military was, was doing a lot, a lot, a lot of like multicultural trainings. As a matter of fact, co the corporate world copied a lot of the those programs from the 70s and 80s uh, and in, in the 90s to make it to make the military a more integrated military and not to be all kumbaya. But you need that when it comes to combat. Right. Like there's no doubt that because we have that and this is what these Oath keepers and every everyone, you know, these fanatics don't want to face. And that is that in the Vietnam War, you had a higher level of of uh, racism. And 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 even though in an integrated military, you know, a, a lot of silos within ethnic groups. And that led to a lot of um, issues regarding insubordination uh fratricide you know killing of officers killing of fellow troops you know due to a lot of these problems and challenges and i you know i, I know i'm being long-winded but what i'm trying to say is this that as things were getting better then we had trump who in our society kind of created this huge divide and and it's not this divide again that uh, J.D. Vance talks about, you know, with, you know, I was a poor veteran from Appalachia who made it up top and I did it, you know, because of, you know, those roots in Appalachia, right? You can find as many stories of that with African-American troops. You could find that with me, you know, very, you know, Latino, Asian guy who grew up in kind of a redneck part of Florida, you know, who used the military as a way to transcend. Um I guess what I'm trying to say is um, we've got problems, but it's largely within civilian society. And actually, part of my research is going to end up with professional military education, PME, and that's to distribute some of my information to war colleges as well as military academies and military colleges. And not, I'm not going to come out controversial and talk about critical race theory, even though I believe in it. Uh, I, I believe in the context, I, how it's used and all of that, not like what the mass media uh, shows it out to be. But I, I'm, you know, I'm not even going about my 
pursuit for, for deeper understanding of these issues by using critical race theory, but mostly the theories on historical trauma that are clinically, you know, like uh, recognized by uh, National Health Institute that there are troops uh, that have historical traumas that come from, you know, that are tied to race in many ways, and they're serving in the military. And shouldn't these generals and leaders know about those things so they can navigate the, the whole uh, terrain as far as organizing an officer corps that is more aware, I, I'm not saying a guarantee, but more aware of these different multicultural issues that may combat um, the fixed faux narratives set up by folks like the, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. So I don't know if that was helpful. No, no, it definitely was. And I, I guess for me, what, what interests me is I, I think this is actually a, a more long running problem than, than people realize, because I mean, so I had mentioned, you know, you, you could look at someone like McVeigh from the Gulf War or, uh, you know, someone like Bo Greitz, who, who was involved with the militia yeah. movement. I think um, Randy Weaver of Ruby Ridge yes. was Green Beret. And yes. I, I mean, you can even go back to the Hell's Angels. A lot of them were ex-military. And I'm, I'm not blaming anything on on, no. on them being veterans, but it seems like maybe there was just an issue with readjustment that everyone overlooked. Right, and so you're right about that. And I'm, I, you know, it's like your questions are so uh, uh, insightful that they make me want to talk, you know, 20 hours, but I can, no, I can't. But the thing with Timothy McVeigh, just a, a quick little image, people don't realize that before, right? Before he got caught up with a lot of this stuff, people don't realize he had failed special forces training. Uh, he had just gotten back from Desert Desert Storm. He was a um, recognized as a hero. Uh, he was supposed to be a prime candidate for special forces. He had an ankle injury. And a lot of times when it comes to um, the military, if you snooze, you lose. So if you miss that training opportunity, you're never going to get it again. So they pressured him with a bad ankle to go into uh, this intense military course called the Special Forces Selection Course. Of course, he's got leg issues, you know, ankle issues. He drops out. Then, you know, they put him back into regular forces. He's kind of shamed from what I heard in his narrative. He's given a discharge, but he's not like the soldier that he was before. He's thrown out of the military with honorable discharge, starts to go to school, isn't doing well in school. I believe the VA or or some someone was trying to collect a, a student loan debt, you know, uh, after his, his uh, war experience. And it doesn't shock me that by understanding McBay's life, that he would be prone to something like, you know, this militia type of movement, uh, you know, and, and extremist movement. And you've got a lot of veterans tied to readjustment who are truly disgruntled in their experience, but either not seeking the, the resources for improving their lives or not being exposed to them or not being led by them or not being, you know, uh, you know, shown them because it's not really that active in social media and in mass media, right? Everyone just talks about 22 veterans 
who die every day of suicide. They don't talk about the reasons why they die. It's not just because they're just thinking about that firefight, you know, that happened in, in Fallujah. You know, they're thinking about other many other things, you know, being separated from, you know, their child. You know, there are a lot of vets who, who lose child visitation rights. There are, um, again, I, I talked about the student loan things. There's there's ways where at times the VA will try to recoup money that, you know, they made a mis mistake kind of like um, uh, accounting for. And then the vet ends up with that money and then is forced to pay back because of the mistake that the VA made. And so these frustrations, I think, will enhance. Yeah, I was just going to add to that and then we'll close out here. But um, it, it's funny because I, I'd mentioned the Hells Angels and how some of them were uh, ex-military guys. And I always loved Hunter S. Thompson's book on the Hells Angels. And I think there's a lot more to that book than people realize. Uh, but one yep. of the things he gets at is that, you know, uh, a lot of these uh, guys within the Hells Angels, whether they were ex-military or not, the system sort of filled them. Yes. And, you know, it, it seems like what you're saying in a lot of ways is that we often end up filling veterans. The the policies in place uh, within the military and outside of it often fill these uh, veterans when they come home. Yes, that's 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 the central part in my cultural studies approach to vet, to veteran readjustment uh, culture. It's not looking at okay, this Hoag study that spoke about veterans and uh, 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 PTSD, 20% of veterans, I think the Hoag study was done in 20, 2006. It's not just the spectacle of that, right? It's like saying, well, how, how, how was the uh, study conducted? What happened to those veterans that did say that they had PTSD? What, what are you know, the programs that are tied to the this famous research study, right? And so, so we have these micro failures towards veterans that that need to be looked at. And I think, yeah, my approach to veteran readjustment culture really looks at that. And that's why I really appreciate being on your show. And um, it's just great to be on here to have, you know, kind of like an outlier voice along with these other outlier voices. Well, Mike, Kim, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything you want to say in closing uh, to my listeners? What do you hope they get out of this conversation? And also, if you can, plug your podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I would say, um, you know, Jonathan Shea uh, spoke about and he wrote Achilles in Vietnam about Vietnam veterans who uh, uh, came back from the war and were uh, marginalized and, and kind of like, you know, alienated. He says um, that the communalizing of the veteran experience is so important. So it's not just like this individual endeavor, but basically, you know, veterans can come together. If veterans can come together with veterans or with civilians, I think that's a powerful thing. You having me on here, um, you being open to me, it's a way of communalizing that experience. And we need to kind of extend those uh, in many different ways, you know, to let these different voices, uh, the exchange of voices like what we're having. I think that's imperative. And so I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, you can find out more about me and contact me through social media, Mike Kim Veteran. Uh, just Google Mike Kim Veteran and you'll find me. You'll be able to get in contact with me. Uh, I have a weekly podcast that's tied to um, veteran readjustment 
culture. It was basically a, a lecture that I presented at University of North Texas, and it led on to the development of a uh, podcast with the folks at comminghomewell.com. And you can find my weekly um, podcast on Sundays if you look up Veteran Etc. and uh, through comminghomewell.com. So thank you for having me here. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Kim of Coming Home Well and the Veteran Etc. podcast. Should have some new bonus content up for Patreon supporters of Parallax Views within the coming week before the end of the month, including video versions of some recently released Parallax Views conversations. Also, some content that hasn't been posted on the main feed yet, 